Hi everyone, this is Prerna Subramanian and I am in conversation with Clarissa and if I wanted to introduce Clarissa, it would take a lot of time because I think uh, Clarissa cannot be um, defined by just her community work but also um, uh, as a student of education on campus. So I would actually want Clarissa uh, for you to tell us how you would like to uh, position yourself on Queen's campus uh, and to, to the audience of CFRC today. Sure, I can, I can do that. That's, that feels really generous and nice of you to, to frame it like that. But um, I am Clarissa, Clarissa Delion. I'm a PhD student at the Faculty of Education where I research anti-racist pedagogy and education. Um, I do a lot of work across Queens. I, I, I facilitate Queens Reads. I also work at the CTL um, and I, at the very core of my heart, I'm a teacher. So that's how I like to describe myself. So I feel that leads me to just talking about uh, what you said about um, your own work about anti-racism and pedagogy. I mean, today we're not talking about just about your work, but just trying to position ourselves uh, within the Asian Heritage Month, which is going on as, and it also sort of uh, collides with Mental Health Awareness Month. So there's a lot uh, going on in the world right now, which where these months which come and go seem as at once important, but also very momentary. So how are you sort of perceiving these months which we celebrate every year in the pandemic as someone who is a PhD student and as someone who's an Asian student on in Queens? Yeah, I think that is such a good question. And I'm actually super interested to hear your thoughts on this too, Prina. But um, uh, like before you even came like and approached me for to, to speak with you on this segment, um, I had been thinking about this idea of like celebratory months for a while because um, there's someone I follow on Twitter. He's a Filipino activist in the US named Kalyan. And um, he actually reached out to all of his Twitter followers and asked them like to all my Asian family out there, how do you wanna be celebrated? And like my gut instinct, as soon as I saw that question was like, I actually don't really want to be celebrated. I, I don't, I kind of yeah. like viscerally like reject this idea of like an institutionalized month for celebrating me and my folks and my people and fellow Asians um, when it, it seems to sidestep all of the issues like that happened to us throughout the year. And, and so I, the last thing I want from institutions and from white people is celebration. Um, what I would really love is action and, and Absolutely. education on their own part, because as much as I am as uh, an educator, I, I take it to heart um, that um, marginalized folks don't have to be educators to their oppressors. And exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, when I think about like what I want to do this month to celebrate, like I just want to connect to other people of color. I want to connect to black and indigenous folks and, and thought and talk about like, like what, what do we want for each other and ourselves and, and really just sort of take the ideas of celebration out of it because it, it feels tokenizing, I have to say. 
and especially when um, i was looking at i think it was you or some many other people uh, bipoc folks uh, on our um, facebook group uh, were really angry about how this time the theme of aapi is resilience Mm-hmm. and um, because you said that you wanted to know my thoughts as well like a lot of my work is around uh, the idea the emotional politics of uh, calling a marginalized community resilient or showing them in cinema as oh look at them they have done uh, they have achieved everything against all odds because after a point it's just romanticizing our struggles without really talking about how how we are forced to be resilient right like the the conditions of the world are pushing us to 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 fight against odds and be productive and be be on time and do our work and then that end goal is celebrated without seeing that the struggle was actually unnecessary but necessitated right mm-hmm. so uh, i wanted to know like is is that also something which you've been like thinking about whether like this whole idea of is it tone deaf to celebrate resilience at a time where of pandemic which which was also the time when uh, i feel the the cases in atlanta like sort of exacerbated the asian hate which was already going on with the onset of the pandemic um like the conversations the discourse around it was already up in the is uh, was already in the air and then uh the canada uh, theme of api just put me off and yeah, yeah i want yeah know your thoughts about it yeah i i i absolutely hear you and what you're saying and i share share your sentiments completely it, it, at the very 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 best it's tone deaf at the at its most authentic though it's it's how you know in canada the way in which white supremacy manifests is not going to be overt all the time as many times as it is but not all the time and yeah, sometimes it's like, yeah. yeah yeah it's it's very much like covertly in its messaging of like in how racialized folks and indigenous folks are othered and and placated into accepting that it's great in which the fact that we live in this quote unquote multicultural sort of country and that it's great that we're that we're able to be othered without investigating how that there are power dynamics in that othering in that no matter what we will exist as folks that are oppressed by an overarching white supremacist kind of structure in uh, in this settler colonial um country and and that's something that's really difficult i think to talk to other black indigenous and poc folks about because um we want to think that canada is the nice cousin to the us we want to think that racism doesn't exist here but the reality is that it exists in much more insidious and quiet ways and one of the quiet ways it exists in is by celebrating us for quote unquote resilience without broaching the question of what is it that we have to be resilient against you know like what what is it that like what are the systems in which we are working at that calls upon us to be resilient and is there are there problems there and there are problems there but we don't talk about it and that's why being in Canada can be really frustrating when it comes to anti-racism is because um we're almost conditioned and placated to just accept things as they are because this is um 
this isn't how racism is quote unquote supposed to look. So, you know, absolutely, I agree with you. And I do get really frustrated by resilient um, narratives. And um, I, I get really frustrated by uh, them because they are so silencing because it just, it's almost like they wanna force us to accept this compliment without actually wondering, you know, what are the conditions that came about so that we had to have these characteristics. So absolutely, I agree with you. And it is like, I have to wonder, I have to wonder who in, you know, cause this like the, for those of you who don't know this idea of resilience being the theme for this month is something that came from the government of Canada. And I yeah. have to wonder, like, was this a case of someone in that department being like really tone deaf or really intentional in trying to calm us all down? Because um, instances- It is dismissive and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're right at the same time, cases of anti-Asian violence has skyrocketed in Canada over the past year, specifically um, on the West Coast, but truly across the country. And if, if we're being called resilient against that, what are the other messages? The other messages are, we're not going to change anything. <laughs> like exactly. this is just the way things are. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more of like, like, um, sort of like the disease is accepted as something which cannot be changed, but then the symptoms are like, oh, if you fight against the symptoms, you are, you are like, it's, it's very palliative that way, right? Like we will just, we will just try to, um, you know, support you through, uh, giving you better mental health uh, advice or like, you know, calling you, you resilient is also to put you through that resilience training narrative, right? Which also happens on campus, which happens in um, like, of course, this is the government of Canada doing it in a, in a very celebratory way, but as students as well, like on campus, we've been uh, also organizing about uh, for uh, our own rights as campus workers and yeah. students and um, what what has been told to us in the course of the pandemic I, I mean it's been always it, it's the structure is the neoliberal structure of the university but especially in the course of the pandemic when we have like actively sought help and actively asked for assistance and especially as as uh, students who've been who are either migrant students like me or racialized students on campus who have different traumas and grief work that they have been doing and engaging in in the pandemic. And when we get told that we have to be trained in resilience and at the same time as in the public discourse, we are taught, we are told that we are already resilient. So it's like, um, it's this double edged sword of this term, right? Like where we are, we are already being trained into being resilience, resilient, right? That is about like, oh, you, you just need to get with it. You just need to accept how it is. And uh, the best you can do is have conversations with each other where uh, we are also trained to sort of make everyone happy. I don't know whether you agree with this, but then uh, in spaces where, where we sort of take on that educator role or like, or become the tokens to talk about certain issues, we also have to end on happy notes, right? Like, mm -hmm. but they're never the, they're never about our idea of happiness, our idea of joy, but it's about what, how can we make it, make change look optimistic for everyone? And I don't know, like, what do you think about that? This whole idea of like optimism is also, but like, how, how do you 
be optimistic in a time where oppression and occupation and pandemic is all is is just reaching its crescendo so yeah that's something i have been thinking about like like or oh, just be this side the resilience training the, the narrative has its roots in the side of positive psychology right like where yeah. people yeah you'll have to uh, just change your negative moods to positive it's also about the about uh, the economy we exist in where they want the worker to to be manufactured into a happy citizen so that they continue and go on working and that's what happens with us as phd students on campus as well uh, with a university also thinking of going into on campus um uh, full on full time on campus next fall so like there's a lot lot happening and when at that time when we are called uh, for giving narratives of optimism happiness celebration it just like feels like yeah. i and at the same time we it's not that we are unha- we, we do not have narratives of joy but this is not what they what 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 is being sought out of us i feel so what do you yeah. think yeah i think that is that is such a good point and and the way um that you're phrasing it in terms of narratives of joy is so interesting because what it's making me sort of realize in this moment is that you know on top of sort of like you know us existing within a racist society us existing amongst white supremacy w- the ways in which that manifests is like it takes on so many different forms and one of the forms that that we're talking about right now is that that white supremacy is trying to dictate to us the conditions of the emotions we're allowed to feel and the conditions yeah. of how we are supposed to express those emotions and what kind of ways in which we are supposed to sort of relay joy and when and for whose convenience and like that makes it like it like when it gets to a point where people saying like you need to be optimistic you need to be grateful for the way things are or like you need to be resilient and just sort of like work through the system the question when it comes to emotions that i come down to is that like for who am i doing this for is this for my betterment yes or or you know you know is this for the betterment for the status quo which is very white and and that is so frustrating because um when you know mar- marginalized and racialized and indigenized folks are asked to sort of like take the high road or you know asked to sort of like not be so negative think about all the things that we are being robbed of in that moment to not be able to authentically sort of feel what our bodies are feeling the ways in which our bodies are reacting to um a an oppressive situation and i wish i knew there's this scholar i wish i knew their name right off the top of my tongue but they they work with this concept called intimate citizenship and it looks at who in a society um has the agency to feel their all their emotions lauren berland uh the these authors talk about in like using intimacy like seeing how citizenship works in intimacy yes yeah yeah for and and, and i think that's uh, that's absolutely like one of the things that if as as racialized folks we don't take the minute to sort of examine it's so easy to lose that it's so easy to lose that agency and and to just sort of accept that this is the way things are and it's um 
you know, one thing that for, for all other Black, Indigenous, and POC folks who are listening, one thing that I would encourage you to do is like to never take it for granted. If you have a yucky feeling in the bottom of your stomach that something isn't right socially, like something that's being said to you or narrative that's being pushed on you doesn't feel right because it's making you feel small. Like don't pretend, like don't let, like, you know, minimize that. There is something going on there. Like that yes. is that is the reality of what it means to to live in a settler colonial white society that 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 are the ways that's like the, that's how we're impacted and so it's it's difficult and um but i do like at the same time i so i take so seriously the idea like the the, the idea of joy uh, yeah. among bipoc folks and the importance of joy and us being able to determine and um, take control over the ways in which we experience joy and preserve spaces for our joy and to like remind ourselves that we are capable of joy and deserving of joy. And I think that what's really important in when we cultivate those spaces that, that is that we make sure that like, that they are spaces like that are absent in as much as possible, absent of whiteness and, and just sort of like, really sort of embrace that and it's difficult because you know whiteness is everywhere but I just also think that the minute that we allow whiteness to determine what our emotions are is 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 when we start sort of internalizing our own oppression and and that's Ugh, that is maybe the saddest reality of white supremacy. And what I will say is that, you know, the past year has been very difficult for Asian folks. It's been very yes. difficult for, for Asian, um, you know, Asians on, you know, within in the Western world in general has like we've been targeted and, and um, you know, been targets of violence uh, increasingly yes. over the past year. And what I will say is that the people who came out for me the loudest and with the most amount of love are the Indigenous and Black folks in my life. And yeah. um, it was without prompting. It was, it was without a call to action. It was just people who cared about me and had wanted to have relationships of accountability and solidarity with me because to the best of my ability, I tried to do that for, for other racialized and Black and Indigenous communities. And I think that that is like, when I think about my joy, like that's my joy. My joy is community. Yeah. My joy is accountability and the ability for us to provide cares in the ways in which we can and provide cares in the ways in which other people are not able to care for themselves in moments of vulnerability. And, you know, like that's that for me, like if I want to spend this month doing anything, it's, it's really, really nurturing those connections as well as connections to, you know, Asian folks within my community. And, you know, like that to me, like that, nothing makes me happier than that idea. Like, you know, everyone else can keep their narratives of resilience. What I want is um, like radical love and, and radical accountability in these radical communities of, of solidarity. That's, that to me is celebration. That's so beautiful. And I think that's a really uh, the amazing point to end at. And also like, I am um, always worried about how to end conversations when these are also ongoing, you know, like these are conversations to be had every day at some level or the other. And I feel when you, when you said about uh, what is joy, but like uh, caring in ways that uh, is, is impossible in, in institutional ways. And I feel um, 
what you have done in 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 queens with your drop in sessions and the fact that um we were able to have a sharing circle through uh, our union on campus and there are many many ways the institutions around us have failed us and um i think the best way uh, we can actually redefine what a month celebrate of celebration is to celebrate um is to sort of also like give up on the institutional definition of celebration but also not not what uh, uh n- not the idea of joy and celebrating mm-hmm. ourselves and our existence um and yeah that that's i just don't want to end this conversation but like um <laughs> i would also like want other asian students on campus to actually um uh, reach out to me or um reach out to cfrc to um uh, even have a segment with us or discuss uh, any issue which you think is is important to you and especially uh, other uh, black and indige- indigenous folks on campus this is a space which i would really love for you to use and to to call your own We're back and you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. We have some news updates for you folks. Joseph Pater, Professor Emeritus at Queen's University, is the recipient of the Canadian Cancer Society Lifetime Contribution Prize, a new honour from the Canadian Cancer Society. The award recognises an esteemed Canadian investigator whose contributions, visions and leadership have enhanced the Canadian cancer research landscape to significantly benefit the lives of people with cancer. I am thrilled and humbled to be named the first recipient of the Canadian Cancer Society's Lifetime Contribution Prize, said Dr. Joseph Pater, Professor Emeritus at Queen's University and recipient of the CCS Lifetime Achievement Prize. He continues to say that I am pleased that the selection committee has recognized my very collaborative contribution to establishing a network of Canadians' research leadership who support the vital endeavor of finding the best treatments to reduce cancer morbidity and mortality, which is CCTG's ongoing mission. For over 45 years, Dr. Pater has been devoted to advancing clinical trial research aimed at improving the lives of cancer patients and to education, training, and mentoring the next generations of students, fellows, and young investigators. Under his guidance, the Canadian Cancer Trials Group at Queen's University has become one of the most well-respected cancer clinical trial networks in the world, producing results that have accelerated the development of new treatments and established new standards of care worldwide. Dr. Pater created the most impactful cancer clinical research program program in Canada in terms of generating research results that directly led to benefits for patients with cancer, says Janet Dancy, director of Canadian Cancer Trials Group. He is one of the most important individuals in Canadian cancer research, having built a collaborative network that has defined new standards of practice, improved patient outcomes, and that is recognized globally as a centre for excellence. We're pleased to introduce the Lifetime Contribution Prize this year, which provides an opportunity to honor extraordinary Canadian researchers in a new way, added Stuart Edmonds, Executive Vice President of Research and Advocacy at CCS. The work that Dr. Pater has had and will continue to have a tremendous impact on cancer research in Canada and on the lives of people affected by cancer. Sometimes called the father of cancer clinical trials research in Canada, Dr. Pater completed his medical training and accepted appointments in the Department of Medicine and later oncology at Queen's during a 
time when medical oncology was still in its infancy. In the early 1970s, Canadian oncologists began running cancer clinical trials with the support of the National Cancer Institute of Canada's Epidemiology Unit. In 1980, NCIC established a formal collaborative research network. The NCIC Clinical Trials Group, now CCTG, and Dr. Pater was appointed as the inaugural director. Over the next 27 years, his leadership transformed the CCTG from a small national program at Queen's to the largest collaborative cancer clinical trials network in Canada. The team became the first Canadian research network with a developmental drug program, allowing them to lead new investigational drug trials that directly led to new cancer drug approvals worldwide. Dr. Pater has played an active role in the development, execution, and analysis of over 500 multi-center Canadian and international cancer trials involving more than 85,000 patients around the world. His 240 publications span the areas of hematology, oncology, statistical methods, cost-effectiveness, and quality of life, and have been cited over 24,000 times for their insights on new drug and therapy development and patient-centered outcome measures. As a Queen's professor and mentor, Dr. Pater also acted as head of the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology, taught clinical trial courses to dozens of cohorts of students, and supervised numerous graduate students and fellows, many of whom have become emerging leaders in their own right. After retiring from the CCTG, Dr. Pater served a three-year term as Vice President of Clinical and Translational Research at Cancer Care Ontario, during which time he helped develop a new research chairs program and facilitated planning for provincial investments in cancer research. He has sat on numerous research advisory boards and selection committees in Ontario, Canada, and around the globe. For his outstanding accomplishments, Dr. Pater has received multiple awards and accolades, including the Canadian Cancer Society Award of Excellence in Medicine and Health in 2001, the National Cancer Institute of Canada's Diamond Jubilee Award in 2007, the Canadian Cancer Research Alliance's Award for Outstanding Achievements in Cancer Research in 2015. A recently proposed private member's bill that would make it a criminal offense to dump raw sewage in waters frequented by fish was dismissed as a step backwards by environmentalists and opposing MPs. Bill C-269, proposing changes to the Fisheries Act, was tabled by former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, and underwent second reading May 10th. Their proposed changes would basically be a return to the laws under the old Fisheries Act, which were ineffective and rarely enforced, said Mark Matson, environmental lawyer and president of Swim Drink Fish. Canada. Under the old act, it was a criminal offense to deposit deleterious substances like sewage into waters frequented by fish, and in 2012 it was amended to allow ministers to authorize potential violations and deposits of deleterious substances. The amendments essentially exempted sewage treatment plants from the charge of putting a deleterious substance, in this case sewage, in water, said Matson. It was replaced with Canada's wastewater systems effluent regulations to enable community-based specific regulations to be put in place to speed up improvements. The overall health of the water has improved then since said Matson. Thanks to the WSER framework, all water utilities now have to publish data about discharges of sewage. Matson said this transparency was impossible when dumping sewage was a criminal offense because the data could be used as evidence against utility companies. When the city of Kingston started being transparent about its sewage overflows, investments in sewage treatment, plant capacity, and real-time water quality monitoring also started. For 50 years, you couldn't swim in the urban waterfront on Lake Ontario, Matson said. But as a result of that transparency, the community got behind all kinds of changes. 
He goes on to say that, unfortunately, I think the solution that's being proposed here, going back to the way the law was back in 2012, really sets back the improvements we made over the last decade and is blind to the opportunities under the current Fisheries Act for making real steps to protect our waters and protect Canadians from pollution. The regulations are starting to really have some teeth. We're at a point where the rubber is hitting the road, so the idea that we would just toss that process out the window and go back to the more blunt instrument of the criminal law is a bit of a mistake. This bill is not designed as a piece of legislation, said Green MP Elizabeth May in an interview on Tuesday. This is designed as a campaign bumper sticker. It's not without raising some important issues, but as drafted, it isn't very workable. Scheer explained his bill would exclude raw sewage from the list of deleterious substances that can be exempted for release into waterways. It's a very simple fix, said Scheer. If the bill receives royal assent, towns and cities would have five years to invest in and upgrade their wastewater systems. Scheer said five years is long enough for municipalities to do the necessary upgrades, but short enough to take real action on preventing the environment in the here and now. The Liberals, Bloc and NDP parties all indicate their support for ending the dumping of raw sewage, but took serious issue with the approach of Scheer's bill. It's unreasonable to expect small communities with limited resources to upgrade their wastewater systems in only five years, said NDP fisheries critic Gord Johns on Monday. The fines that this would incur would be absolutely devastating and seriously hamper the work that they're doing. He said the bill also leaves recreational and commercial boaters open to fines and charges when depositing sewage in the ocean, even though it is unavoidable without spending large sums of money on updating their vessels. Bloc MP Monique Pose said that they cannot support the bill because it offers no real solution to the issue of effectively dealing with wastewater. There is no doubt that investment in infrastructure must be made, she told the House, but the solution does not lie in arbitrary and enforceable bans. No municipality is happy to dump its wastewater. They want to comply, but they just can't afford to. In 2016, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities estimated at least $18 billion would be needed to upgrade wastewater systems to comply with federal standards, but the Liberal government only promised $2 billion. The bill still allows other harmful substances like oil, gasoline, diesel, heavy chemicals, pesticides, cleaning products, industrial effluents, and heavy materials to be dumped in the water, said Pause, questioning Shear's prioritization of wastewater above all else. Bill C-269 might sound great, but Liberal MP Francis Scarpaleggia said if it passed, it could have serious consequences on communities across Canada that already treat their wastewater to a high standard, and could also interfere with the development of regulations to control wood or plant-based waste from industrial facilities. This legislation would immediately punish those communities that have no choice but to dump raw sewage right now, said Johns. Matson stresses the need for more transparency, not less like Bill C-269 would encourage, and real-time monitoring across Canada. We know the latest album dropped by Drake within seconds of when he drops it, says Matson. I have no clue why Canadians aren't alerted when sewage is being discharged into our waters. Matson said Shear's bill probably wouldn't help the situation, but hopes that it will at least raise awareness so the issue gets more investment. If we accept what he's doing and we go back to the way things were before WSER, then there was nothing happening, he said. The story was by Natasha Belowski, National Observer for the Local Journalism Initiative. That's your segment for The Scoop. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We hope that you enjoyed this segment and that you enjoyed our earlier chat with Clarissa about AAPI Month. Thank you once again. We hope you have a great rest of your day and don't go anywhere because we have Democracy Now! coming up next. 
Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.